If you'd like to follow in your own Bibles the scripture reading, it's to be found in Jeremiah, Jeremiah and 32. At verse 36, through the end of the chapter, I'm going to read these verses, and then I would like to ask Abraham if he would beg God's blessing upon the pronouncement of his word. Jeremiah 32, 36. And now, therefore, thus saith Jehovah, the God of Israel, Concerning this city whereof ye say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all the countries, whither I have driven them in mine anger and in my wrath and in great indignation. And I will bring them again unto this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. And they shall be my people and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from following them to do them good, and I will put my fear in their hearts that they may not depart from me. Let us go ahead and, and stop there. Let us pray. Amen. Well, we've been looking <clears throat> for a few months, for a number of weeks, at the matter of the fear of God. We've looked at it from a few different angles, a few different perspectives. We've looked at the fact that the scriptures tell us certainly that there are many that have no fear of God before their eyes, no fear at all. And we've looked at some that there is a fear 
of God in some fashion, but it's not that godly fear that we've looked at the last few weeks. And we see that godly fear represented in Noah in Hebrews 11 and verse 7 that moved with godly fear, he built the ark according to God's direction, according to God's command. And we see even our Lord Jesus Christ in Hebrews 5, 7, and praying unto God with godly fear, which is really something of an amazing thing. And it reminds us that our Savior is both God and man and experience this godly fear. And then we look lastly at godly fear as it's represented in the last verse in Hebrews 12. Worshiping or serving God with reverence and awe or reverence and godly fear. And we brought out at that time that this word that is used, eulabea, could well be rendered in another fashion it could be rendered, we brought out, as it is in at least one translation, as reverent submission. Reverent submission. And we're looking at that matter again this evening, from Jeremiah in particular. And this pronouncement of the covenant that God made with his people that's repeated in Hebrews 8. And so I could, I'm not in the habit of giving titles to my messages, perplexing Sam sometimes, but nonetheless, if I were to offer a, a title for this message, it would probably be something like the covenanted fear of God, or even better, the covenanted godly fear, the matter of covenanted godly fear, or even better, covenant reverent submission to God. And I believe that we find it in this text that we've just read. And I believe the essence of this covenant that God has made, and again, I believe that we have some bookends here just in this passage, this pericope. I believe the bookends are from beginning to last. They shall be my people. They shall not depart from me. They shall be my people. They shall not depart from me. I believe that that is at least one of the essences of this covenant. It's a glorious covenant. It's a manifold covenant. It's a promise. A promise given by God to his people. God who never lies. God who never fails. God who sees to it that every promise he has ever made meets its fulfillment. And he has told us these things that we find in this covenant. They shall be my people and I will be their God. I believe that we see at least three things on the surface here in this passage. They shall be my people. We believe that we see at least here God's electing grace that he has chosen a people. They shall be my people. 
God's electing grace demonstrated here. I will give them one heart and one way. And I believe that we see the matter of sanctification here. I will give them one heart and one way. That they may not depart from me. Thirdly, I believe that we see the teaching of scripture, the doctrine of the perseverance and the preservation of the saints. I will keep them in my hand. It's as though God was saying that. I will keep them in my hand. And again, this is a promise. But God's electing grace. Some have taught, and I've been among them, whether it was rightly or wrongly at that number of years ago, but there is something of a chain of salvation. That's not to say that there are steps that people take to earn salvation because there is nothing that we can do to earn salvation. Salvation is merited solely by our Lord Jesus Christ. It's only his merit, but there are, there are connecting links, if you will. There is a chain of salvation, and most people use that term or something synonymous with that term when they think of Romans chapter 8 and verses 28 through 30. You're familiar, of course, with that passage, all things work together for good to those that love God, to those that are called. And those that are called are called having been foreordained. And those that are foreordained and called, he justifies. And those that are justified, he glorifies. Now it's conspicuous that there's not any mention of sanctification there. It's conspicuous that being foreordained is synonymous with being elected, being chosen from before the foundation of the world. But one writer has suggested, a very popular writer and well accepted among our reformed brethren, one writer suggests that the, this chain it, it suggests uh, not only in, in Romans 8, but in the entire body of scripture, the analogy of scripture, that, that there is calling, there's regeneration, there's faith and repentance, there's justification and adoption, sanctification, progressive, that is. Perseverance and glorification. Well, we might make the point that election, in some views, in my view, sanctification, and the reason I pronounce that progressive sanctification is because sanctification means many times, can mean, and in many cases does mean being set apart. That's what we find so often in the Old Testament when the priest sanctified something. It was for the temple use, for the use in worship, that it was sanctifying. In other words, it was being set apart for a particular use. And I believe that God has sanctified his elect. He has sanctified his chosen people in that regard, that he has set them apart. Indeed, I believe the scriptures teach that he has set them in Christ from before the foundation of the world. They have been set apart for his use, that is God's. They have been set apart in Christ. 
And these other, these other things, calling, regeneration, faith, repentance, justification, adoption, progressive sanctification, perseverance, glorification, they are all contained within that being set apart in Christ. If God has placed one in Christ from before the foundation of the world, this chain, if you will, is going to be discovered in that life. Election. Election. For example, anticipates, does it not, regeneration? Are there any that God has chosen to be his people, elected from before the foundation of the world that don't experience regeneration in this life? That can't happen. Because God has appointed the regeneration, even as he has appointed that individual to salvation. And as we've already looked at part of this promise, I will give them one heart, a new heart, a regenerate heart, in one way, sanctification unto conformity to Christ. These things are found in this Again, looking at it as being set apart in Christ. They're found in Christ. God said that he will put my fear in their hearts. We began this series in January talking about the fear. Where did fear originate? When do we first see it? It was in Adam's fear, the first expression of fear. Adam didn't have anything to be afraid of, you remember. He was in the garden. He had everything. And he even talked with God in the cool of the day is strongly implied that that was a daily occurrence. And yet after he and Eve sinned, they hid themselves in the garden and and God came calling after him, Adam, where are you? And Adam had to tell God, I hid myself because I was afraid. He feared God because of sin. Adam's fear, I believe, was only a a selfish fear in his mind. And as soon as the temporal cause was removed, as soon as he realized he wasn't going to be struck dead, perhaps, the fear gradually was assuaged. The fear of God did abate in his thinking. The difference between the fear expressed by Adam... There's a difference between that and this fear of God spoken of here through Jeremiah. When God says, I will put my fear in their hearts. I will give them one heart and one way. Regenerating grace instills fear for the good of God's people. And whatever is for the good... The spiritual good of God's people is redounds to the glory of God, does it not? Regeneration confers repentance. Repentance is a gift. You realize that, don't you? Repentance is a gift. We could bring that from the scriptures and, and demonstrate it. And faith is a gift. Regeneration confers repentance and it confers faith to the subject of that regeneration to the recipient. And sanctification follows. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. 
He's giving them one heart, speaking of regeneration. And one way, I believe, speaking of sanctification and perhaps much more. But it says here that they may fear me forever. Fear is an important element. It's an important grace, if you will, that we fear God. The law, the letter, that was what Adam was under. That was why Adam was afraid, because he had broken God's commandment. He had broken God's law, the letter of the law. What does the law do? We need regeneration. We need to have our God give us one heart and one way with that new heart and to put his fear in those hearts. The letter of the law only sets before the eyes of men what is right. And it sounds it in their ears, but it doesn't give them any ability to do it. It doesn't give them the ability to even love the law much less to do it. It only sets it before them. But in the gospel, God inwardly teaches hearts and minds. He regenerates. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. That they may not depart from me, we read. And included in that one way And Mark was touching on this this morning. Included in that one way is the way back when we sin. None of us are suggesting that even because our hearts have been regenerated by God's grace, and even because we are being sanctified by God the Holy Spirit and by God's grace, nobody at least among us claims to be perfect, claims to be without sin. And I hope that I never hear it. But what do we do with sin? You see, what I'm saying here is that this one way that God gives, it includes the way back, the way back of repentance. Preservation and perseverance of the saints. Even when they fall, they will return. They will get back up. They will repent 70 times 7 and on and on. And they will be forgiven. God has provided this one way and also included this way back, the way of repentance. God has declared, I will keep them in my hand. And this covenant is an everlasting covenant. It's an everlasting covenant. It's addressed In type, it's addressed to what we just heard in chapter 9 of Romans of those that are the real spiritual Israel, God's people, God's chosen people. This covenant is an everlasting covenant and it's been made by him who has sworn by himself for he could not swear by anything greater and he swore by himself that he would keep this promise, this covenant. And so he will lose none. It speaks of that perseverance and preservation. God preserves, and he enables his people to persevere. He gives them the grace, the strength, the faith, and all things that are needed in order to persevere and be thus 
preserved. I will keep them in my hand, he has said. You're probably familiar with John chapter 10, where Christ speaks of this when he says, my sheep, again, my sheep, my people, I will be their savior and they shall be my sheep. We could transpose that perhaps. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, he said, and I give unto them eternal life and they what? Shall never perish. They may fall. They may fall terribly as David did and others, but they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them Jesus said, no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Not even ourselves. Not even we can snatch ourselves, to put it that way, out of God's hand. We are his sheep, and he knows us. It's sad, truly sad. How many there are in the fundamentalist, dispensationalist, Arminian camps that have embraced the teaching of eternal security. I was just telling someone recently about my beloved uncle. He became beloved when I became a Christian. A lovely man, an Arminian, but a lovely, God-trusting, Christ-believing man that died several years ago. But I remember when I first met him and I had the first opportunity to tell him as I was so anxious to do. We were in Michigan, they were in Florida the first opportunity to tell him what Christ had done for me, what God had done for my soul. And we entered into conversation about doctrine. And I'll never forget him saying when we were talking about eternal security and talking about other doctrines of grace, he frankly admitted, he said, wow, all these years, and he was a professing Christian from his teens. All these years, he said, I thought I was a Calvinist because I believed eternal security. And of course, the brand of eternal security, if you will, that he held to was that bogus understanding of perseverance. It's really sad. These things are really sad that someone could receive distorted teaching. We could ask them, why do they trust God to finally save them, to keep them in his hand, to save them finally, to cause them to persevere even unto the end in their faith, if it was their supposed own thing, their faith that saved them. If they took that last step, it's totally inconsistent, and that's what makes it so sad. Why do they trust God to finally save them when they at the same time believe that he could not save them unless they took that first step? But God does save his people. There's a huge distinction referring back to Adam again, there's a huge distinction between hearing God walking in the garden and being afraid and hearing God walking in the garden and rejoicing. Praise God for putting his fear in our hearts. 
the new covenant that is more formally, formally expressed in the previous chapter in Jeremiah in 31 at 31, verse 31 through 34. We're told, Behold, the days come, saith Jehovah, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What does that tell us? In the day that I took them, it was the Mosaic covenant. It wasn't the Abrahamic covenant that was being spoken of here, but the Mosaic. He said that I made in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith Jehovah. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith Jehovah. I will put my law in their inward parts. Law can't do that. And in their heart will I write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his brother, saying, No, Jehovah, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Jehovah. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin will I remember no more. One has written, one commentator has written on this, Jeremiah 31, 33, saying, He now shows a difference between the law and the gospel, for the gospel brings with it the grace of regeneration. Its doctrine, therefore, is not that of the letter, but penetrates into the heart and reforms all the inward faculties so that obedience is rendered to the righteousness of God. It is not so, says Paul, under the gospel, talking a about the law, but the veil is removed under the gospel, and God, in the face of Christ, presents himself to be seen by us. This is the difference between the law and the gospel. The gospel brings with it the grace of regeneration. You must be born again. Its doctrine, therefore, is not that of the letter, but it penetrates again into the heart, it reforms all the inward faculties so that obedience is rendered to God's righteousness. He says not only I will put my law in the inward parts, but also I will write it in their hearts. Not only within them, but actually written upon their hearts. And they shall be my people. The main object of God's covenant is that he should become our father. Jeremiah says again, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. For God does not otherwise own us as his people, nor can he be our father, except he regenerates us by his spirit. For it is of regeneration that the prophet here speaks, that Jeremiah speaks of here in relating this promise, in relating this covenant. Listen to what Calvin said about this matter. And it really struck me how that we are 
by God's grace different. We are by God's grace not accepted by a lot of people. Remember, brothers and sisters, it is because of God's grace. And don't get angry when you're not accepted. Don't be discouraged when people don't want to have anything to do with you. Even family members. Don't be rejected because of that. But remember and bring this to your mind, into your heart, that it is God's grace. As Christ said, they hate you because they hated me first. But listen to what Calvin says. It really struck my heart and mind. When he now speaks of one heart, he refers to union and consent, but of such a kind that they all obey God. Men often unite together for evil, and the children of God are often compelled to separate themselves from the ungodly, and hence are those discords which now prevail in the world. The blame of which is cast upon us. Have you ever experienced that? I trust that you have, or I expect that you have, and I know that I have. The blame of which is cast on us. Oh, you can't get along with anyone. We are labeled as intolerant. In the rest of the world, we'll tolerate anything except intolerance. Calvin goes on, but as it is necessary for us to separate from the papists if we wish to follow God, it is better a hundred times to separate from them than to be united together and thus form an ungodly and wicked union against God. E-C-T. Evangelicals and Catholics together. How can it be? Agreement or union is indeed singularly a good thing because there is nothing better or more desirable than peace. But we must ever bear in mind that in order that men may happily unite together, obedience to God's word must be the beginning. The bond then of lawful concord among us is this, that we obey God from first to last. For a cursed is every union where there is no regard to God and his word. If you want to dump even a, a jot or a tittle of God's word in the trash in order that you can get along with everyone, why can't we just get along? And you'll have to live with that or die with that. Paul seemed to have borrowed from this place in Jeremiah when he said to the, those uh, in uh, the church at Philippi, when he says that God gives us, you remember that uh, chapter 2 and, and verses 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who gives you to will and to do his good pleasure. He gives us to will and to do his good pleasure. But it's him working in us, is it not? And yet it's us that are commanded to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It is God who gives us to will and to do. Ezekiel has expressed this covenant in, a, in language somewhat different and, and beautiful. 
And my servant David, Ezekiel said, or God said through Ezekiel, shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in mine ordinances and observe my statutes and do them. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Who's David? Who's David, his servant, that he's speaking of here? The greater son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ. David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle, who's the tabernacle? My tabernacle also shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That they may fear me, Jeremiah adds to that which we have read. Also it appears that the fear of God is produced. It becomes distinct. It becomes recognizable that it must be regeneration by God the Holy Spirit that produces this fear even as it produces faith and repentance. It, it follows then, does it not? That the beginning of the fear of God is regeneration. And let me just remind us that there are not two stages. There are not two stages in the Christian life. There is spiritual growth, of course. There are ups and downs, but there are not two stages. Regeneration includes the gifts of repentance, faith, and godly fear. Just as, just as there is no taking Christ as Savior now and sometime later on, sometime afterward, making him Lord. We don't make him Lord. He is Lord. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't make him Lord any more than we made him Jesus or any more than we made him the Messiah. He is Lord. There aren't two stages. You can't be saved now and, and submit to, to the Lord Jesus Christ ten years later. There aren't two stages, brethren. May those, we should pray, may those who think otherwise, those who think to divide Christ or his work, that they might learn better while it is yet today. Salvation is all of grace. Salvation is all of God. Salvation is all of grace. Salvation is all through the blood of the Lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other salvation. It's all of grace through faith from beginning to end. It is not a cooperative venture, as many think, as many teach. We used to see bumper stickers. I'm kind of glad that I haven't seen one in years but there are worse around now. But we used to see bumper stickers that said, God is my co-pilot. And they thought that they were, were lifting God up by saying, God is my co-pilot. I have faith in this co-pilot. I have trust that he won't steer me wrong. God is my co-pilot. Listen. God is the pilot. Some people retorted in thinking that they were speaking very well 
to abate God's jealousy in the matter, saying, God is the pilot, I'm just the co-pilot. Wait a minute. You haven't moved very far. Just a little bit over in the cabin. Man is not even the co-pilot. Do you understand? Man is not even the co-pilot. We don't cooperate in anything unless God gives us the ability, the grace, the faith to do so. God is the pilot. He is the co-pilot. He is the navigator. He is the flight controller. He is all in all. Maybe we could think of ourselves as the ground crew. But even then, we can do nothing apart from him. He preserves his people. He enables them to persevere through godly fear. To persevere through godly fear. That they may fear me all my days, he said. That's part of the covenant promise. That they may fear me all their days. Unto the end. Perseverance. Preservation. Unto the end. Unto glorification. I was reminded once again, as I have been frequently over the years, when I think about things such as this, my father, as far as I know, wasn't a believer. But then he had Alzheimer's for several years, so I don't know what God did in those years. And I'm thankful that I don't know. But I just remember that all my father had to do was to look at me with that look. All he had to do was look at me with that particular look. And I was right away wondering, what am I doing? What, what's, what have I done wrong? And trying to imagine what, what I'm getting that look for. And that's how, that's how we should have this godly fear, this reverent submission, being fearful what? Not that we're going to be cast out of God's presence, but fear that we're displeasing our God. Fear that, that we're not pleasing Him. You remember when Peter got that look from Christ after he had denied Him three times. And Christ turned and looked. I think it's Luke that records that. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Jeremiah testifies that the fear of God is the work and gift, grace of the Holy Spirit. He does not say, God does not say, I will give them power to fear me. I will give them the ability to fear me. I will help them to fear me. No, he says, I will put my fear in their hearts that they may never depart from me. I remember one of my wife's cousins, a young woman, when she first met me after Barbara and I were married, we went a little ways to visit and we were sitting outside talking and she was asking us about our religion. And she said, oh, 
You're a Baptist? Well, that means you can't do anything you want. I said, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't mean that at all. I can do everything I want, but because God has given me a new heart and he's given me one way, what I want to do is to please him. I want to do what he wants me to do. What is the result of the opposite? What is the result of no fear? Jeremiah addresses that in the second chapter in verse 19. He says, thine own wickedness shall correct thee. Again, remember Peter. Again, remember David. Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and a bitter that thou hast forsaken Jehovah thy God, and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord Jehovah of hosts. By God's grace, David and Peter had new hearts. By God's grace, David and Peter Though it may have been a real struggle in both cases, they were brought to repentance because God's fear was in their hearts. Because God had regenerated those hearts. Teach me thy way, the psalmist David again says, Teach me thy way, O Jehovah. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Unite it. Bring all these things together. All these graces. All these fears even. The grace of fear. Bring all these things together. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Pray God. Unite in me all the blessings of that covenant promise. I will be thy God and thou shalt be my people. Set me apart. Father, set me apart unto thyself in every way, in calling, in regeneration, in faith, in repentance, in thy fear, in justification, in adoption, in progressive sanctification, in perseverance, and in glorification. Unite in me all these blessings. Grow me in grace and the knowledge of thyself, the knowledge of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow me, O Lord our God. Conform me unto the image of thy Son who died for me, loved me so much. Oh, Father, put thy fear in my heart. If I ever even think of doing what Peter did and denying thee. If I ever even think of behaving as David and turning my back on thee. Put thy fear in my heart, we pray. We read in Malachi 3, 16 and 17. Then they that feared Jehovah spake one with another. And Jehovah hearkened and heard, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared Jehovah and that thought upon his name. And what does God say? And they shall be mine. They shall be mine, those that fear him. It's, it's recognized that they are his because they fear him. They shall be mine, saith Jehovah of hosts, even mine own possession in the day that I make. And I will spare them as a man spareth his own son 
that serveth him. Oh, that the fear of God, the reverent submission to God would enable us and cause us to serve him as the sons and daughters that we are by grace.